water. I'm Derek Neighbors. Clayton Lingle's like, <laughs> we're a little eager. Uh, we want to talk about uh, team size today. So uh, we, don't, we don't necessarily want to talk about what is the exact right size for a team, but uh, maybe what are the advantages and disadvantages of teams of uh, certain sizes? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm seeing a, a lot in a group that I'm working with where um, the teams aren't, like, obnoxiously large. I mean, you're not talking a 30-person team. But there is, there's been a lot of change. The teams are probably, you know, in a lot of, a lot of ways would be acceptable team size. They might be between 8 and 12 people, which is not an abnormally large, but, you know, not on the smaller side either. And some of the things that people are asking is – are can we really improve more if we continue to have the, these size teams or if we were to go to smaller teams could we actually do things better than we're currently doing them like would that make a difference would it make a difference if we and some of this is because they have more products that they want to introduce and so they really can't go hire more people so it's not you know a product owner or a product manager says we really need this other additional product but we don't have people to put on that team because they no longer do the project madness. They actually line people up to products and they belong to a product and they stay with a product and they, they really own it, which is awesome. But now, hey, we've got this new product that we want to start. We're not allowed to hire people right now. How do we staff that product? So they're talking, well, what if we had you know, formed a new team, but that would mean some of the other teams would get smaller. Would we get a better result from that or would we get a worse result from that and that's kind of the discussion that's been happening yeah i would say that i think uh something i've seen with the small team it's amazing how much easier it is for them to make decisions and get alignment on things and have like a shared set of values and i've seen these same people work in larger teams that are probably close to six like six seven eight people and nine people whatever so maybe more like the traditional scrum size and i never saw the type like i've never really have seen those people or those teams of that size um, be able to make decisions as fast as this team of effectively four people, um, as fast as they can make choices. So like they they can move so fast on things. They can get information and decide some, to do something. And there's not like the, the they don't have that uh, feeling of we need to have a meeting because some people aren't here and we need to like involve everyone. So does that ability to make quick decisions, how does that compare against uh, a team's ability to produce so much value? Like, the, Does that mean that they can't produce as much value, but they can produce more of the right value, or what? How does? Um, I would guess that most organizations are in the boat where if they took a team of 12 people and they got rid of four people, like I don't know that they would see a huge drop in quote-unquote productivity. Maybe even a game. Yeah, you know, and I think like you eliminate some of those extra communication paths and some of the extra overhead of having to deal with that many people trying to make choices or and, decide and what you, to do and all that stuff. And you get rid of some of the assholes. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so it seems like I think a lot of times it might seem on the surface that like if we have a team of 12 and they're doing, you know, if they're trying to use velocity, right? Like we're a team of 12 and they can do 20 points a week. If we get rid of four people, like they're going to go down, you know, but I don't know that that's always the case. Yeah. I mean, I think some of it is the communication pathways problem or the decision trees problem. I, I, I heard an analogy today I really liked about learning and it was an analogy towards video games and it was try, die, try, die, try, die, level up, try, die, try, die, try, die, level up again. And I think one of the things that happens is when you have a lot of people and decisions go slower, it means decide what to do, wait, 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 
try die. Wait, 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 try die. Wait, 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 try die, try die, level up. Whereas if you're able to do that much smarter, smart, smarter and take out those wait, 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 you actually level up much quicker. And so I, and when, it, when I say level up, I'm not necessarily the people and the team are leveling up, but the product is improving at a much greater rate, not because the decisions are better because there's less people, but you're able to fail on the decisions you make much quicker to get to the right decision than if you sit around for hours trying to hash it out between eight people what the right decision is. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've sat in where there's eight people and seven of the people are like, hey, let's totally do this. And you've got one person that drags it for three days. To, to try to make a decision. So that can happen in a small four-person right. ha- team, too. Right, it just happens too, quicker, right? right? Like, yeah. I mean, for the most part, it tends to happen quicker. But I think there's something more to it than just size, right? It comes down to a lot of trust and alignment and right. things like that, which are easier to attain when there's four of us versus when there's 12 of us. Well, because I think you get overlap, us. right? Because if you have a team of, say, let's say you have a team of 10, and the team is supposed to be doing some collaborative effort, like, I might only interact with one or two people a day. Like, let's say we're all pairing. Like, it would take me two, three weeks before I would maybe pair with everybody. Like, we'd have to go out of our way to make that happen. Um, But I think on a smaller team, you have so many more, like, you have no choice. You have to do more stuff with the same people over and over and over again. So I think you speed that process. Yeah, you you have more trust quickly because you're more connected because you're doing stuff more often. The other thing is, if I'm on a team of eight people, there might be large parts of the code base that I'm not even really that familiar with. Even if I'm pairing all the time, just because by circumstance we've been through a few sprints and a lot of code has been created and I've not been pairing with a lot. And so now somebody wants to make some decision. Well, the two or three people or four people that have paired on that and are really familiar with it are like, come on, let's make the decision. And the four people that are like, um, I'm not really sure. And like, I'm, you know, like it's really hard to keep that sense of ownership and that sense of like collective being where if you've only got four people or five people tops, it's really easy to be in a much more shared state of trust because you're so so you're you're never very far removed from whatever it is you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? It's very rare that you're like, oh man, people have been talking about what we're going to do about this for days, and I haven't been included in it. Like, if you're on a team of four people, it's hard to not be part of almost every conversation on some right, level. unless you choose to be right. right. Um, the other thing that that I've been talking a lot about, and that, and I think this is kind of a, a big part of mediocrity for a lot of teams, is if you've got 10, 12 people, even nine people sometimes on a team, and you have one or two really strong people and one really weak person on the team, that weak person can really hide. Because what happens is the the strong people can just pull harder or work harder or put more effort. Or shuffle the weak person around. You know, shuffle the weak person around, like whatever. And what happens is if you ask them, well, why aren't you doing something about it? Their answer becomes, it's more effort for me to deal with trying to make the person that is hiding be exposed than it is just for the... Th- so if there's, if there's the four of us and there's you know five other people on the team and one of them's really weak, we just say, like, hey, the four of us will cover what the other person's not doing, and like that's easier than having all of the emotional stress of dealing with somebody who's not performing. Mm-hmm. But you get on a four-person team... It's no longer okay. Like, I'm sorry, the two of us are not going to pull the slow guy. It's just not happening because now it's a Herculean effort instead of like, eh, it's kind of painful. But And so two things happen. Is either the guy that's hiding figures out really quick, I can't hide, and decides to go somewhere else, transfer somewhere else in the company, go to another team, leave the company, or they have to fess up and say, like, look, I don't know, I'm lost. I don't know how to do this kind of stuff. I need help. 
And usually what will happen is a team will embrace that and say, like, okay, if you want help, I'll help you, but I'm not going to carry you anymore. So when we were in a 10-person team, we all carried you around, but now that there's only one of us to carry or two of us to carry you around, we're not going to carry you anymore. But if you want help, we'll help you walk. Right? And, and I think that that is something that exposes very, very quickly when you get small teams. Like It's so hard to hide when you're on a team of five people. Yeah, with a 10-person team, that one person, their negative impact, I think, relatively speaking, is kind of the drop in the ocean kind yes. of thing. But when you're half the team, like when you're one-fourth of the team and you're negative, you have a negative impact, like you could do half a day's work that is bad and like it really impacts everybody. You, you can't avoid that anymore. Well, and we, we tell lies to ourselves. So if we've got 10 people... And it's like we've got some work to do, and it's like, well, technically, like, Clayton really can't do anything for the team. But we've got this stuff that we don't, none of us really want to do. So, like, we can mm-hmm. dump it on, like, maybe we've got some manual tests we need to do, or maybe we need to do whatever. Like, so, like, we'll keep you around even though, like, push comes to shove. We don't even count your capacity in, like, what we're doing. But we know we can give you some stuff we don't want to do. Well, when it's four people and it's like you have to do four people's worth of work, you can't go, well, but Clayton doesn't count. It's only the three of us. <laughs> Like well, the, so that's, it, it, that's part of the problem, though, is if you have a team that isn't lazy enough. Because right. I've worked on a team where there were, like, I think there were, like, four or five people on there. And we did it, like, that exact thing happened a lot because the team wasn't, wasn't, wasn't lazy enough to automate all of that stuff. And they never got around to it because they could just always give it. Like, it was actually easier for them not to automate it because they gave the fifth team member something to do. And... Like, the, the cycle just kept going over. Like, there was no reason to ever automate, and there was no reason to ever bring like this a, guy up. Like, pro tip, if your team slack is the same number as your capacity, you might, <laughs> you might be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably other issues going on there. <laughs> my, my point is it becomes a lot harder to hide that, right? If you're doing, like, capacity-based planning, and you've got, like, 400 hours, and you're only hiding 20 hours, like, well, you could, you know, s- s- explain away that slack pretty easy. If you've only got... 80 hours and you've got 20 hours of slack hidden away, I think pretty quick a product owner starts mm-hmm. to go like, man, that seems like an awful lot of like time for the amount of people here, right? Like it becomes much more difficult to explain that away. So we're, we're saying that uh, 10 person teams are a little large for us. I think that's erratically small team <laughs> size for a lot of people to say 10 people. And we're saying that's too big. Yeah. Uh, how do people deal with this if they're in, in large organizations with you know pretty large teams? Like, what do they do to start changing the way that their teams operate to get to get more lean and mean, to get more uh, exposure, to get all these things that we're talking about? So I think it has to start with modeling the behavior you want in yourself. So start off by saying like, "Hey, I'm going to go do X over here. Whoever is interested is welcome to join me." And if all 30, 40, whatever people on your team join you. That's great. Then you can immediately say, like, okay, now I'm going to go B, you know, whatever, and then keep doing that until enough people drop off that you have a reasonable-sized team. Well, I think one thing that happens a lot is people do everything by project. So everything is matrixed. Everybody's a resource. Everybody's sliced 10,000 ways from Sunday, and you've got 6,000 projects that you're doing. And I, I think if one of the things you can do is start to say from a functional perspective, like, what products do we really offer or what services do we really offer and get those narrowed down. It's probably not the 6,000 projects that you have there. You probably have some much finer night, finite number of actual projects. And then what you can start to say, okay, we've got 30 projects and we've got a hundred people, you know, how do we start to, to break that down? And then you can even start to say, you know, if the teams are still a little too big, say it's, you, know, you divide that number and it's still 20 people per product, you can start to say, can we slice that product even smaller? 
Um, you know, Amazon probably did this best, right? You have this nice commerce shop going on, right? Some point it gets too big and they say, how can we split it? Well, what if we had all the server provisioning and management? What if that was a different team? Well, that became a new product called EC2. Well, what if your provisioning and management team starts to get too big? Well, you know, we're going to take and take the storage part of that, and that's going to be a new product called S3, right? And, and so can you take a product and can you look at it and you, can you slice it in a different way? Um, maybe, you know, you can't do it as a full-on product that's consumable by somebody else, but maybe you're able to do it as a component of a product. Maybe you're eBay and you say, like, our search bar is kind of like its own little product. So that's going to be a component that's got its own team, and all they do is continue to optimize and refine and make the search component really awesome and provide the API to you know iPhone clients and other things to make searching really well, right? So I think if you can start to do that, then it becomes easier and easier, and you can start by saying, hey, maybe we, maybe we go from 30-person teams or 50-person teams to 10-person teams, and then maybe go from 10-person teams to 8-person, you know what I mean? Like you, you don't have to make that jump all at once, right? You can make it in chunks. See. Uh, what I hear you saying is uh, really Conway's law is going to kick in here and the products that you develop are going to be a reflection of those communication paths. So you're going to get smaller, simpler tools and products and things like that that will build on each other to yeah. build a more complex organization and more complex set of products. Yeah, and it makes you much much more adaptable because what starts to happen is if you have smaller products, you have the Unix mentality where you start to say, we're going to do everything via APIs. We're going to do everything where the product's small and it does something really, really good and it will take inputs from other places and it will provide outputs to other places and once all of your products start to line up and start to do that, it becomes easier and easier to fracture projects because if you are a product, because if you've got a product and say let's split it in two and everything's an API, it becomes really easy to once it's split, it can still talk to the other product no problem. When it's a monolithic code base and you say like let's split this thing, like that's panic for everybody because how do you even pull it out of source control? It's so like you know intertwined with everything else, and, and so I think it's a whole mindset that then makes everything way more nimble. Because now if you want to, like, some third party comes off and does it better than you do it, awesome. Throw that product away and adopt their product. Or, you know, hey, you need some new product that's out there to bolt onto your thing. It's really easy to bolt on, right? So it, it gives you all these other advantages other than just team size as well. So what about in a non-software world, non-software context? Like, how does this apply? As like, far as breaking the teams down or? Yeah, having, I mean, small, having team. small teams, keeping things simple. Like, how does that how does that work in when we're not talking about software? Give me an example of like a non software. I'm a marketing team, right? And so, I mean, I think you can do the same thing. I mean, think of it as products, right? Your products might be services, right? So it's like you know, well, maybe there's like the logo team from the marketing group, and maybe there's the like brand standard team, and maybe there's the you know. Uh, marketing collateral group and maybe there's the social media party like you know maybe there's different you know maybe you think of your service offerings as products like we offer this service as a product it doesn't have to be a digital thing but maybe it's a uh, you know if you you know I, I think um and i can't remember the gentleman's name right now he's a publisher i'll, I'll probably try to put in the show notes does really good about talking about everything you do should be a product so whether you're an author or a speaker, like if you're a speaker, you should have pre-canned talks that you're able to give that people can buy as a product. They can dial you up and say, Jade, I want your talk on small teams. What's that cost? Can I buy it? Can I click a button? Can I book you? 
right? So just because you're not doing software doesn't mean you can't do products. Mm-hmm. Like we buy non-software products all the time and we can buy service. If somebody comes to clean my house, that is a service that they're providing me, but I can call up and say, I've got a 2,000 square foot house. How much is it going to cost to come have it clean? And I buy that product. And they probably are able to upsell me and add value add-ons and everything else. You should do the same thing with your teams, right? Even if they're not software. Great. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to integrumtech.com slash podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Integrum Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integrumtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.